The Man of God Network exists to help the church in her mission to identify and equip qualified, faithful men for the gospel ministry and for the recovery of biblical reformation in our day. It's our joy to provide you with resources that both encourage you and edify you as you seek to build Christ's church where you are, to the end that He is better known, loved, and exalted. We appreciate the support of our listeners. To learn more about how you can help us accomplish our mission, visit manofgodnetwork.com. You are listening to Preaching and Teaching on the Man of God Network of Podcasts. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, that is the genuine God who is faithful, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world, to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is my fourth and final sermon on the prophetic message to Philadelphia. Following our usual outline, we now come to the last two parts of that message. First, the commitment to conquerors, and then the call to hear. So the commitment, verse 12, and the call to hear, verse 13. So let's look first at verse 12 which lists Christ's promised rewards to those who overcome. Here we have Christ's plain commitment to conquerors. 
And remember that each of the seven churches is given the promise of eternal life in these commitments under different symbols or pictures. Each of these symbols shows a different aspect of the glorious life for believers in the age to come. The church at Philadelphia is given four pictures that really just represent one truth. And the first part of the promise is that they will be pillars in the temple of Christ's God, of my God, as he says. And so we might say the name of this sermon is The Named Pillars of Christ. Those pillars named by Christ. Pillars in the temple of my God. Now these believers are promised to be made like pillars. Of course, they're not going to be literally turned into pillars. This is a metaphor for a blessing of the life to come. What do pillars do? Well, they hold up buildings, don't they? They connote strength and stability. They're an integral and even immovable part of a structure. Now, you may recall from many weeks ago that earlier in the first century, the city of Philadelphia had been hit hard by an earthquake whose aftershocks continued for at least five years. So the people had to leave their homes, and it was a long time before they were able to go back in. So the promise of being an intrinsic part of the secure and eternal house of God would surely appeal to these believers in Philadelphia. Christ is promising them in this symbol. He is promising them permanence, safety, an eternal dwelling that they will never need to leave. Notice further in the verse, this idea is emphasized when Christ declares, never shall he go out of it. You'll be made a pillar, you'll never be removed. You'll never have to leave. Pillars aren't, at least ordinarily, like furniture, which can be rearranged or even removed from a building. So in likening conquerors to pillars, the promise is that these overcomers will become an integral, supporting, and permanent part of the eternal temple of God. That is, they will forever be numbered among the worshiping people of God. They will be living in the place where God dwells and sheds his light and life. The conquerors will never want to leave. They will never be asked to leave. They will never be made to leave this place. They will be, as Paul says in the New Testament context, forever with the Lord. That's what this metaphor is picturing. But this metaphor doesn't just have a local historical background for Philadelphia. It is also, and I hope you're expecting this, 
rooted in the Old Testament. This is a picture rooted in the Old Testament. Now, there are several places that are suggested as the launching off pad that, that John is thinking of here. But of those several possibilities, I think the most obvious reference is clearly to Solomon's building of the temple. This is recorded in Second Chronicles 3.17 and 1 Kings 7.21. These chapters describe Solomon's building of the temple of God in Jerusalem. And one of those parts mentioned in these two verses that I listed was two pillars. The temple had two pillars. These were tall, perhaps about 30 feet high or so. They were made from bronze, and they stood north and south in front of the entrance doors to Solomon's temple. They held up the roof, or roof, depending on where you're from, I suppose. The point again being made with this symbol is that conquerors are promised to be made a permanent part of the temple of God. They will dwell in his presence and be indwelt with his presence. They will never be removed, but serve in the holy place of worship near to God without any fear of sin or distance from him or any uncertainty at all. They will securely dwell with God forever and they will experience the fullness of eternal life from God who is life. And they will know assurance of heart. Do you remember the type of Christ we read about back in Isaiah 22? It was a man named Eliakim. He was given authority to rule God's political people as a foreshadowing of Christ. He was a type of Christ. But he was not the permanent answer to the needs of the people of God. We didn't emphasize this part of that story a few weeks ago when we studied the passage. But do you recall what Eliakim was made in God's house? It wasn't a pillar. Eliakim was not made a pillar. He was made a peg. He was made a peg. In chapter 22, verses 23 and 24, God says this, I will fasten him, referring to Eliakim, I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. Well, that sounds pretty good. And it was. God goes on, and they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house. So Eliakim would typify Christ, but he would be less than Christ. And we know this because what happened to Eliakim? Well, according to verse 25, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way. You see, trying to put the weight of the perfect obedience of God on a mere man, even one who is ruling the house of Israel, is too much for him to bear. The peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way and it will be cut down and fall and the load that was on it 
will be cut off. You see, again, as a mere man, someone who was not the promised Messiah. And no matter how good a man Eliakim was, and he must have been good, his ruling work couldn't bear the weight of the salvation of the entire people of God. Oh, he was a a good ruler temporarily, but he and his reign were insufficient. You see, because a peg can't bear the weight that a pillar is meant to carry. And so it gave way. It failed. But a greater than Eliakim has come. Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of David's line. And his rule is unstoppable and unending. Remember, he opens and no one shuts. No one thwarts the salvation of Jesus Christ. He is about the business of establishing the temple of God with infinite strength. No one can tear it down. He's no mere peg. No one pulls him out of the socket. (laughs) And so his people are lost. No. This builder erects pillars that no one can dismantle. What's the point? The point is, so we securely rest in Christ for our eternal salvation. But interestingly, we are told two other things. Well, we're really told something else about these two Old Testament temple pillars. Perhaps some of you know this. Each pillar had a name. I'm sure it's coincidental that the pillar in our text has names. No, of course not. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John is expounding for the new covenant people of God a foreshadowing of salvation in Christ from the Old Testament. Of course these pillars have names. The northern one was called Boaz, which means in him is strength. And the southern one was called Jachin, which means he establishes. Now, those are very suitable names for pillars, aren't they? They connote the stability and the certainty of salvation in Christ. We have already been reminded in in this letter that what Christ does in saving his people cannot be undone by anyone. Again, he opens and no one shuts. He shuts and no one opens. Salvation is sure because it's the work of Christ. Eternal life is certain because he has opened the way to God by his life, death, and resurrection. No one can shut that door. Conquerors will live with God in uninterrupted fellowship forever because Christ is building that temple. So this description of a pillar in the temple is Christ's exclusive saving work under a different picture. In verse 12, Christ says, I will make him a pillar. You see, becoming a pillar isn't your work. It's not my work. It's Christ's work. I will make him a pillar. We don't make ourselves into a permanent part of God's temple. 
Christ does it for you. This is another way of saying, ultimately speaking, we don't build Christ's church. He does. (laughs) What we have is his indomitable promise. I will build my church. So this is his commitment to all who faithfully endure. He will form them into an everlasting part of God's worshiping people. In our God is strength. And he promises to use it to establish us in eternal salvation. You are a pillar. And we might say that Christ in you is strength and Christ in you is establishment. We are safe. Now since the Old Covenant typical or foreshadowing pillars had names, we might expect that the New Testament fulfillments have names. What names will these new covenant pillars have? Well, our text tells us three of them, right? And all of these reinforce the truth that God's faithful, God's commitment to his faithful people is certain. First, the first name written on the pillar is this, the name of my God. And I will write on him the name of of my God. When God puts his name on someone, it means he claims them for his own in order to do them good. He claims them for his own in order to do them good. There are so many examples that be given. I'm just going to give you one that you mostly know. It's from Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 to 27. Now, this is a benediction that we often use um, at the end of our worship. But listen to the context around it. Listen to the explanation of why it's being done. What the blessing is, what the benediction is, is a naming ceremony. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name, that is Aaron and his sons, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Do you see that speaking the benediction over Israel was a way of putting God's name on them and it was a sign that he would bless them as his own. Remember, physical Israel is the covenant people of God in the true sense, in a true sense in the Old Testament. Jehovah is their great king. He claims them and promises to bless them in very specific ways. Now, these blessings are conditional in that covenant. 
That is, they were dependent on the people's obedience, which was something they, as it turns out, couldn't maintain. But Old Testament Israel also typifies or points to the spiritual Israel of God. Everyone who believes in the promise of a deliverer. And in this new covenant, Jesus Christ promises to write God's name on them. He will be their God and they will be his people. And this will be done on the terms of the new covenant. So the blessings will not be dependent upon their obedience, but on the obedience of Christ. So all the promised blessings of the new covenant are secure. Salvation is certain in this unbreakable and perfect covenant. According to chapter 14, verse 1 of Revelation, God the Father's name and Christ's name is written on the foreheads of the redeemed. And in Revelation 7, this is called the seal of the servants of God. This means that God's name confirms or certifies or makes certain that we are His. This teaches that for those of us who have been taught by God, that who believe in the name of God, that name marks us as being owned by him and protected by him. When God's name is written on us, no one can erase it. We are forever identified with him. So brothers and sisters, you should be assured that we are his. And he is ours for all eternity. But if we are his then it must be that we are included in the people of God. Surely this must mean that we're citizens in the kingdom of heaven. And yes, that is what the next name is that's written on us. The name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. You see, to have faith in Christ is to be joined with him. And if joined with him, then with his body. We learn in chapter 21 that this new Jerusalem, the holy city, comes down out of heaven from God, and it is the people of God. In other words, the city is another symbol for God's elect. In that same chapter, the city is called the bride of Christ, adorned for her husband. So John uses all these different symbols to assure us that believers belong to God and we are securely saved in Him. We are His. And so we are citizens of the city of God. Until Christ returns, this city, this family of believers, consists in the spirits of righteous men made perfect. They are waiting His second coming when Christ will raise their bodies from the dust incorruptible and join body and spirit together they will be whole again and when this occur, occurs it will be as if the city the new Jerusalem comes to earth from heaven and so in chapter 21 verse 3 it says behold the dwelling place of God is with man and God himself will be with them as their God heaven and earth will be one God will dwell, according to his promise, with men forever. 
Or as Revelation 22.4 promises, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. All the citizens of heaven will dwell in the new earth, the purchased possession of God in Christ, and they will never depart from that city. As we said before, we will forever be with the Lord. Well, there is a third name, which in one sense is the same name. And that is, Christ says, I will also write on those who overcome my own new name. Christ declares that he has a new name. Well, what does that mean? Look in your Old Testament, right? That's the answer. The idea is rooted in Isaiah chapter 62, where the Savior is promised by his Father, quote, a new name. The context is the same as here in Revelation 3, a promise related to the return of Christ and the establishing of the new heavens and new earth. There his people will be permanently married to him. He will delight in them, and God will rejoice over them forever. The idea of a new name seems to be that the glories of Christ will be more fully revealed in a kind of unparalleled holy intimacy. We will know God in Christ as never before. Remember, names in Scripture, especially those which refer to God, describe character. Right? Names describe character. So now, Christ has a name that, in one sense, according to Revelation 19.12, no one knows. But when Christ returns and brings us to himself forever, he will display his glorious beauty in ways never before known to us. And again, we will be with God forever, with all his perfected people and we will know and worship the Lamb because we will see His face. That is, His name will be more explicitly explained. His glory will be revealed. His majesty will be more fully displayed. And we will rejoice in His beauty as His beloved for all eternity. So to sum up these promises... To the one who does not deny Christ's name. Remember that's chapter 3 verse 8. On that one, God will permanently place his name. It's important to remember the condition that's found at the beginning of verse 12. All of these promises that we've just been rehearsing are for conquerors only. As you might expect, the word conqueror means Someone who fights and overcomes. Someone who wins. It's the wrestler who pins his opponent. It's the soldier who overcomes in battle and defeats his enemy. The word is normally used to describe military combat. And this reminds us that, as Isaac Watts' famous hymn says, I must fight if I would reign that's the truth of this message to the churches. What is this fight? It's the fight of enduring in faith. It is continuing to trust in Christ. It's not giving up. It's not denying Christ's name. 
That is all that he is and all that he stands for. And though we might fear, and Watts' next phrase in that hymn is, increase our courage, Lord, and though we might fear, we must remind ourselves of the comforting truths found in these verses. The strength we lean on is his, not ours. We don't erect ourselves as pillars in the temple. He is building his church. It's his strength. This is his work for us and in us. And so we don't need to be afraid. Christ knows our works of patient endurance in faith because he supplies the strength. He keeps the door open. Our faith overcomes the world because Christ has overcome the world. So we wage war with the devil and the world and remaining sin. And even though we are weak, we will be conquerors through Christ. That leads us to the final verse in this message. There is here a final call to hear. Why why does he keep repeating this over and over? And he will in, in the next and last one as well. Well, perhaps in this case specifically, because like us, these Philadelphian Christians needed spiritual wisdom in order to endure these trials and keep the faith. James chapter 1 tells us that in trials we often lack wisdom, which means in part that during trials we don't recognize what is happening to us and we forget how to respond. We focus too much on our physical circumstances and the trial rather than the lesson and the the heavenly goal, the good that's supposed to come out of it. We tend to be earthly minded and not heavenly minded. But if we will listen to what the Spirit is saying to us in these words of Christ to his church, we will remember that the power is from Christ. And the promise is from Christ. And he will enable us to conquer. This brings us to three uses. First, the absolute necessity of conquering by faith. The absolute necessity of conquering by faith. These promises are only meant for the winner, not the loser. They're meant for the overcomer, the conqueror, the faithful one, the one who by patient endurance still believes in Jesus. It's said that Puritan pastors especially condemned those preachers who would give the promises meant for God's children to the devil's children. That's a good concern. And that happens in America. Well, it's happening right now all across America. I want you all to experience eternal life with God. The greatest joy and good, one that is frankly far beyond your imagination. But I must not promise it to you without this condition. The necessary condition is saving faith. Do you want the joys of eternity with no curse? And with life forever, with the greatest and best of beings, God himself, then agree with God about your sins, that they are damning you, that they are sending you to hell. And rightly so. 
and agree with God about Jesus Christ, that He is the only Savior given among men whereby we may be saved. Now that faith, even that faith is a gift from Christ. And so you can be assured that when you believe, He will continue to keep you in that faith. Remember, He opens the door of salvation and no one can shut it. He gives faith and He supports it all the way to heaven. So that's the first use that I hope is both a challenge and a hope, especially for those of you who are outside of Christ. A second use is this. Christian, frequently remind yourself of one of the great joys of eternal life, that you will be with God and His perfected people forever in worship. Remind yourself of that great joy. You see, believers are those who have sincerely prayed Psalm 27.4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. God has told us to seek His face. And those with faith respond to God and say, Oh God, Your face I do seek, Lord. And that's a work that He does in us to cause us to seek Him by faith. And I want to urge you not to give up. There's a proverb that says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Don't become so heart sick that you give up. It's delayed, it's deferred, but it's not undone. You keep in patience. You keep on believing. You endure in faith in Jesus Christ by His power. And you will be a tree of life. And third and finally, and I think I've hammered this over and over in in this sermon, so I'm not going to spend much more time on it. But please be assured that your salvation is absolutely safe in Jesus Christ. Your salvation is absolutely safe in Jesus Christ. Jesus wrote these words, and I've tried to explain them in a way so that you gain assurance. The purpose of all of these pictures in this letter is to guarantee us that no matter what trials we face, no matter who our opponents are, nothing can separate us from the salvation of God. Christ will make you a pillar in His temple. He will write His names on you. So don't doubt but believe. Rest by faith in the promises of Christ. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.